Hey detective, welcome to the Nancy Drew Rendezvous, the podcast where we take a chronological look at all the books in the Nancy Drew Files series. My name is Teagues and in today's episode we're going to go over book number 23, Sinister Paradise. Today we're getting straight into it. So in book number 23, Sinister Paradise, Nancy is in Hawaii to solve a mystery. She's actually helping out a friend of her mother's whose granddaughter has been kidnapped and only Nancy will be able to help. Sinister Paradise was released in May 1988, and our cover, of course, follows the usual pattern. Uh, Except this time, it's not an action scene in the background. Well, it could be. It is a volcano erupting, but I don't know. How's that going to play a part in the book? Maybe there's going to be some Pompeii-type stuff? (laughs) Somehow I doubt that. Um, And then we've got an attractive dark-haired man holding a surfboard, He's standing like on a beach and then we've got Nancy wearing a cute tropical sundress. It's white with purple flowers and yeah, just very (laughs) Hawaii-esque. So all that being done, let's get straight into the story. The crew are on a vacation again. This time they are in Hawaii, but they're not actually on vacation. They're actually visiting a friend of Nancy's mother's. So we know that Nancy's mother passed away when she was three. There's sometimes it says like of a mystery illness, sometimes it says of a heart attack. So there's not like a definitive answer. But yeah, Nancy's in Hawaii at one of her mother's friend's house. We rarely ever come across friends of Nancy's mother's, so it's a nice change. Bess, George, and Ned are with Nancy as well. So Nancy's mother's friend's name is Alice Faulkner, and she checked in with Nancy's family periodically after uh, Nancy's mother had passed away. We actually don't know the name of Nancy's mother. However, in the video games, uh, Nancy's mother's name is Kate, which I can imagine that being her name, Kate Drew. Kate Drew? Yeah, that's a beautiful name. Also, it's only taken me 23 books, but it also appears like every second book takes place away from River Heights. One case will take place in River Heights, and then the next they'll be in some exotic location, and like Hawaii. Hmm. Hang on, I stand corrected. Books 2 to 8 didn't take place in River Heights, so we had six whole books where they weren't even in River Heights. I guess technically number 9 also didn't take place um, in River Heights, which was in Chicago. It takes like place within like an hour of River Heights, so I'm going to count that as a River Heights book. Anyway, back to our story. Uh, Mrs. Faulkner has called Nancy as her 16-year-old granddaughter has disappeared and would like Nancy's help finding her. Uh, George starts teasing Bess, telling her that Hawaii is pronounced Hawaii, not Hawaii. Uh, I didn't know that. Is George correct? Is Hawaii the rest correct way? Have I been saying something wrong? I'm going to continue saying Hawaii because that's just how I've always pronounced it and I'm never going to be able to remember to say Hawaii. No, Hawaii. 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 Okay. <laughs> How do you pronounce Hawaii? (laughs) Let me know which is the correct way. Uh, We also know that it's winter back in River Heights because they mention it being under a foot of snow while they're basking and frolicking in the sunshine. And Mrs. Faulkner is super, super rich because she's offered the crew a yacht to stay in. Like, Nancy knows such amazing people. I want to go into Hawaii and stay in a yacht. Nancy is living my dream. I'm so jealous. 
Uh, the yacht is anchored in Alaya Way, which is south of Honolulu. And yes, that is actually a real place. Oh, and also I just have to add in that Mrs. Faulkner's house sounds gorgeous. Just listen to this description. A broad Victorian-style plantation house with miniature rainforest that serves as her garden. Tall feather palms cast cool shadows over the brilliant displays of pink hibiscus and white gardenia. Just, oh, it sounds so tropical and beautiful. (laughs) I want to be there. Back to the case. So it turns out that Mrs. Faulkner's granddaughter is 16-year-old Lisa Trumbull. She's disappeared from school on Friday and it's now Monday. There is a fear that the girl may have run away. When Nancy asks why the police haven't been called, it turns out that Ross Rafferty, one of Lisa's guardians, doesn't want the police involved because it would ruin his reputation. Oh my gosh, a child's life is at stake and you care about your reputation. What is it with these people? Oh my God, I already don't like this man. Anyway, it turns out Mrs. Faulkner is also worried about the publicity. She has a bank called Winwood Fidelity, which is owned by Winwood Bancorp. And Mrs. Faulkner has controlling interest in Winwood Bancorp. Miss Faulkner believes that she may have enemies in the banking community who would hurt her granddaughter to get back at her. So where money is involved, there's greed and danger and we know that. Even though rich people shouldn't be looked down on uh, because they're generally just people like you and me and a lot of rich people use their money for good, but there's also lots of people who are controlled by greed. Nancy is on the ball right away. Who would want to hurt Lisa? Why don't you think she just ran away? And then we learn the case goes deeper. It turns out that Diana, Lisa's mother, didn't let Mrs. Faulkner see much of Lisa and Lisa's life was tumultuous. Tumultuous? Tumultuous? I don't know. (laughs) There was um, a thing like, you know how when you're reading the internet and you have these like weird listicle articles pop up? This one was like, oh, 10 words that people have been pronouncing wrong all this time. And at the end of the article, there was a quote that says, I don't mind when a person mispronounces a word because it meant that they learnt it by reading. And reading is special. Like I, number one, will always read a book over watching a TV show or a movie so because I can use my imagination. And I apologise for all the words that I get wrong because I just don't hear them being said. I read them. So if you've got trouble pronouncing words as well, don't worry, you're in the, I'm in the same boat as me. You're not alone. Be proud. It's because you read. <laughs> anyway, turns out that Lisa's life is full of drama, since I can't say that word that starts with T. Uh, and we learn that one day Lisa walked into the family bank, took about 400000 worth of bearer bonds and a bunch of diamonds and hasn't been seen since. That's a lot of cash for a 16-year-old. I mean, you can't really get rid of the diamonds, but anyone can hand in a bearer bond. So, yep, she just has to walk in and there's her $400,000. That would have been heaps of money as well in 1988. Go, Lisa. Ned queries why the bank would just let her in, and then Mrs. Faulkner gets all uppity and says, she's a Faulkner. Winwood is a family bank. All right, lady, calm your farm. Nancy figures Lisa would still be in Hawaii as it takes a few days to convert bonds and diamonds to cash and only a major airline would be able to fly from Honolulu to the East Coast, which is true. You can't just get like a normal propeller seaplane and fly all the way from Honolulu to California. That, yeah, just 
it'll run out of fuel and I don't know if there's any islands they could stop in on the way, but it all seems really complicated. Because of this, thankfully, it would make the case easier, but not without many adventures, as we know from every other Nancy Drew book that we've read. We learn a bit about Lisa's parents, who are Ross Rafferty and Diana Faulkner. After Ross and Diana got divorced, Lisa and her mother moved to Kalakuna Avenue, I hope I've pronounced that right, which is the main father affair in Waikiki. Mrs. Faulkner has decided that she wants to get custody of Lisa and move to Texas to give Lisa a good stable life. We learn that Diana is an artist, so by Mrs. Faulkner saying that she wants to take Lisa and give her a nice, stable life, does that mean Mrs. Faulkner believes that being an artist isn't good enough to raise a child? Oh, oh dear. I really don't like this Mrs. Faulkner lady. I feel like she's interfering where it's not needed. Let's just hope I'm wrong on this. The crew head out in their rental car to begin solving this mystery. Um, Of course, there's the usual comments from Bess being the beauty queen that she is, that she can't wait to get a tan. We've got to tell Bess that tans are dangerous and hopefully she, you know, puts sunscreen on because we don't want Bess all wrinkly and old when she's 30, something like me. It's like, I wish I wore sunscreen when I was younger. That's, yeah, good tip for everyone. Wear sunscreen. So important. Protect your skin. You only get one skin and when it gets old, it, well, I'm not going to shame wrinkled skin because I have it myself. But if you don't want wrinkled skin, then wear sunscreen. <laughs> anyway, they begin discussing the Faulkner family. They're really super, super rich. And the book mentions that they're driving down the zigzaggy Tantalus Drive. Hopefully, again, I pronounced that right. It says that there is huge, luxurious properties hidden behind the jungle on the drive. However, me being the map nerd I am, checked out Google Maps and the properties didn't look luxurious at all. Maybe things have changed in the past 32 years. We know what happens when Nancy drives down a steep, zigzaggy road, don't we? That's right, her brakes stop working. I think Nancy really needs to check the brakes every time she enters a car. This is all too common. How many times has she lost control in a car? First, there was in uh, Secrets Can Kill. It happened in Murder on Ice. And I'm sure there's numerous other books that it's happened in and will happen in again. It's, despite some scary hairpin turns, Nancy manages to get the car to stop with her NASCAR driving skills. And everyone is okay. Is the car? No, the car is not so okay, and they organize a tow truck. Our lazy girl Bess complains about having to walk all the way back to the yacht, but thankfully Nancy remembers seeing a bus stop, and yay, we don't have to give Bess a workout. We just want her to be chill and not sweaty when she's being all cool in Hawaii. They finally get back to the yacht and Bess turns down an offer to head to the airport to speak to the car rental place. Nancy is worried someone may be out to get her but doesn't want to worry Bess and just simply asks Bess to lock the hatch after they leave. They arrive to the airport and Nancy speaks to the hire car operator and learns that they have no records of a car being hired to Nancy Drew. Ooh, that's suspicious. Nancy shows the lady the rental agreement and it turns out that somebody from a company called Malahini Corporation reserved a car for Nancy. Big corporations have deals with car rental companies to ensure that there's always cars available if needed. To ensure that there's always cars available, the car rental place will lease cars from dealerships around the island. A lady who didn't identify herself made the reservation and told them the exact car to use. 
a tan four-door sedan, license number HI9876. <laughs> oh my goodness, I haven't seen a tan car in a long time. We had a tan car when I was younger, but yeah, it's not a very common color these days. I don't think I've actually ever read this book before. So far, it's not ringing any bells. Nancy gets a page over the loudspeaker at the airport. She has a call. It's Ned. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine calling a place where you know someone is and having to get a page out from them. Cell phones really are a blessing. They're also a bit of a curse. Has anyone seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix? Highly recommend you check it out. It's very eye-opening. Ned tells Nancy that he's at the shop with the rental car and the brakes were very broken and bald as an eagle. Nancy tells Ned that she'll pick him up soon and gets the name of the car yard that the rental place leased the car from and heads out. I love this book. Again, I really love descriptive texts in books and this one, especially being in an exotic location, hits the nail on the head. Uh, There's lots of references to Hawaii and its surrounds. The car yard is in Pearl City and they mention the Punanai Hills, but from what I can gather, the Punanai Hills don't actually exist. I'm so butchering everything in this. I'm so sorry, Hawaiian detectives. The owner of the car yard isn't helpful, says the car's not his problem once the rental company receives it. Nancy gets old Karen on him and says that if he doesn't talk, she's going to go to the Department of Transport and dob him in for unsafe cars. Of course, this makes him spill the beans. He tells them the Malahini Corp said that they'll sell him the car if he leased it immediately to the rental company and that he didn't have time to mechanically check it. To make things up to Nancy and co, he gives them a new model hire car for free. Oh, what a lovely guy. So who is this Malahini Corp and why are they after Nancy? They must know that she's involved with Mrs. Faulkner and Mrs. Faulkner was worried about having enemies in the business and banking world. So I guess these Malahini Corporation people are Mrs. Faulkner's enemies, but I'd love to know more about them. Regardless, what a wild and complex scheme to like organize, you know, a specific card that's damaged to get hired to a specific person. I guess these people knew that Nancy was coming. So I don't know, like I feel like maybe there's somebody working undercover in the Malahini. That's who they are. I don't know. It's too early to tell at the moment. Back at the marina, a Catalina is moored near the Ella Cahela and a boom becomes unlocked and almost hits Nancy. The lady of the boat who owned the boat where the boom broke apologizes to Nancy. The book made that seem like, you know, someone was out to get Nancy, but no, it was just an incident that happened at the marina, just a pure accident. Bess quickly makes Ned and Nancy some sandwiches before Ned and Nancy head out to meet Lisa's mother, Diana. Diana is insufferable. First of all, she calls Nancy and Ned kids. And instead of being worried about Lisa and the fact that she's missing, she annoyed that it made her miss her art exhibition. Gosh, no wonder Lisa ran away if her mother was like that. Nancy reflects on how she lost her own mother and would hate it if Carson acted like that towards Nancy. Yeah, Carson is like the most perfect dad. I can't fault him. He's so loving and caring and always got Nancy's back. Oh, I love Carson Drew. I love, love, love him. Nancy asks if she can check out Lisa's room and she finds an imprint of what looks like an address. 
it's like half cut off. So it's like Miss M.I. So mm, don't know, Malahani, maybe the I is the start of the A. Uh, 1276 per, that's all we've got. And then San Far. So I'm guessing it's Miss Malani, Mal- Malahini rather, uh, some address in San Francisco. Maybe it's the Malahani Corporation and it's their address in San Francisco. So me and Lisa's involved with them quite possibly. Who knows? I might totally be wrong on this. Other than that address imprint, there were some photos of Lisa and her friends, a dark-haired one and one strawberry blonde. Our friend Lisa has a model of a Huey helicopter hanging in her room and in one of the photos, the girls are standing in front of the helicopter. Nancy checks outside and notices a man with a moon face and Hawaiian shirt staring at Lisa's window. He was spying on the room. Diana peeks and sees the man. However, he sees them and runs away. They try to catch him. Nancy warns Diane that Lisa might be in danger and Diane finally shows some emotion. About time. Like, don't you think you would be, like, freaking out if your daughter had gone missing or even if she had run away? You should be upset. It's your daughter. The next step is to check out Lisa's high school, Roosevelt High. Bess seems to think that pretending to be a potential transfer student will get her access to Lisa's file. Somehow, I don't think so, Bess. Nancy manages to track down Lisa's best friend, Dawn, and tells her that she's just transed in from Florida. Her dad was in the Navy and she has been assigned to Pearl City. She was in a flying club back home and would like to join one here. Dawn is super excited to hear this as both of her and Lisa are flying fans. Thankfully, Nancy has learnt to fly before because, of course, she has. Nancy knows everything and is able to keep up with the lingo and pretend to, you know, be interested in joining a flying school. Dawn tells her that both girls are members of a flight club and Lisa is more advanced than Dawn. She likes to fly choppers after being sent to a flight school in California. We learn that a childhood friend, Michelle Woodbridge, also lives in San Francisco, California, and Lisa likes hanging out with her when she goes to summer camp. All right, should I start rambling on about summer camp? I think I am. Summer camp is another American phenomenon that just is so crazy to me. Like, how long away do you go away for summer camp? How much does it cost? It's like your kids are on school holidays, so instead of spending time with the family, you just ship them off to a summer camp so they can learn orienteering and sailing and patchwork quilting and stuff. I don't know. We don't have this here in Australia as far as I know, but we do have school camps, which is basically summer camp, but it's just condensed into like a week or like three days during the school term where you go out and learn to socialize in the real world with other people, I guess, and (laughs) learn how to set a campfire and all that other fun stuff. (laughs) I used to love school camp when I was little. I do remember though, we went on a hike and there was some piece of wire across the path for some reason. I tripped over it and I had a huge bruise all on my thigh and I was quite actually proud of the bruise. It was so cool. It made me feel like a badass. Anyway, yeah, school camps or summer camps rather, crazy. Like not crazy. Like it's not silly. Like I would have loved to have had that as a kid, but I think I'm just jealous that I didn't have summer camp, (laughs) just a school camp, and it didn't last all summer. And also, camp counsellor jobs sound really, really cool. Maybe I can go 
to America and be a counselor or something. That would be fun. Just like to see what it's like. But I don't know if I could handle teenagers. <laughs> anyway, uh, we also learned that Lisa's home life was rough with her mother always fighting with her husband. Uh, more reasons for Lisa to run away, I guess, but her husband and her had broken up. Her husband was Ross. Uh, Bess did manage to sneak a look at Lisa's file by distracting the secretary on a wild goose chase. Um, and all she manages to find, though, is Lisa's locker number. So what do we do? We head to Lisa's locker. Nancy manages to unlock the combination lock by listening out for some tings. Okay, I've never heard about this before, so it's really clever. I guess if you want to break into someone's locker and they've got one of those turny things, you just got to put your ear up close and wait for the tings and then remember the numbers and then the turn to the left and turn to the right and then do a full circle and you know what combination locks are like. Inside the locker, Nancy finds a brochure with a flight from Honolulu to San Francisco circled. Nancy realizes that the address she found in Lisa's room was for Michelle's address in San Francisco. Drats, I was wrong. I was so sure it was the address for the Malahini Corp. (laughs) Suddenly, two cops appear and pin Nancy against the locker. Cops being rough. What a surprise. Anyway, the principal interrupts and Nancy introduces herself. Somehow, one of the cops recognizes her because he read a book about her solving the case Wings of Fear in Seattle back in book 13. Okay, that's quite weird, but I guess it works on Nancy's side. The cop recognizes her, so they're instantly friends. The cops are not there to investigate Lisa's disappearance. Instead, the word on the street is that Lisa is selling expensive things. Nancy is worried because if cops know that she's selling expensive things, everyone would know and she would be in danger because she's got lots of diamonds and bonds on her. From the cops, Nancy learns that people offload stolen goods to Boomer, who hangs out at the mall, and Nancy makes plans to meet up with him. Later that afternoon at the Ella Moana Mall, which is indeed a real shopping centre, Nancy meets up with Boomer and offers him some gold earrings and bracelets. While organising the trade, the man who was watching Lisa's window appears, and Boomer knows that he's a cop. Noticing Nancy getting nervous, he realises that the man and Nancy are working together and holds her at gunpoint. Oh no, no Boomer, Nancy is not a cop and neither is that guy. He yelps and runs away. The guy, the moon-faced guy, not Boomer. The book then says Nancy uses her judo skills to escape from Boomer, but Nancy does karate, not judo. George is the one that does judo. So, Ghost Rider, get your Nancy Drew knowledge back on track. (laughs) An eventful chase happens, you can imagine it, it's like a movie scene, startled shoppers and bins being thrown to slow the cat chaser, and because the book is set in Hawaii, of course Boomer is wearing a Hawaiian shirt. (laughs) I love it. I can't imagine like a shady guy at the mall who buys stolen goods wearing a Hawaiian shirt, but (laughs) just just made me laugh. Eventually, they catch him and they tell him that he's not a cop and he tells them that he met with Jessica on Waikiki Beach as she wanted to sell him some diamonds, but she didn't like his plan. He followed her after she left to a rundown apartment complex called the Cully. The crew head to the Cully, but are stopped by roadworks that are happening by the water department. A warning sign reads, explosives in use, turn off your radio. So Nancy turns off the radio and then next to them, a lamp sitting on top of some volcanic sand turns red and a huge fireball exploded and starts spitting debris everywhere. 
Thankfully, it doesn't hurt them and the men and the team ask Nancy why she didn't turn off her radio. She said she did and the workman says, if someone comes close to the TNT detonator with an FM radio, it will set it off. So I didn't learn that. I well, Sorry, I didn't know that, but I do know that now. They search Nancy's car and they find a radio transmitter in there. Someone must have placed it while they were at the mall. Did people like not lock their cars in the 80s? Like you can just go in and put a radio transmitter in someone's car and then set it off to explode debris. I don't know, this seems weird. Nancy takes a look at the unit and examines it closely. Two inscriptions were stamped onto the back of the black vinyl, one in Japanese, the other in English. The English phrase read, Higashi Electronics Limited, Osaka. The workman tells them that that thing can transmit almost 50 miles, which Nancy notes is all of Oahu. I wonder who put it there. Maybe the Malahani Corporation? I don't know where they come into all of this. Actually, I have no clue about this case whatsoever. Who is the man that's following him? Where is Lisa? What do helicopters have to do with anything? Usually I have some kind of theory, but this time I'm just blank. Time to hand back my detective card, I think. Next, we're all at Mrs. Faulkner's bank, the Windward Fidelity. George has headed over there earlier to speak to Mr. Rafferty and is still there. Mr. Rafferty is told Ned, Bess and Nancy are here and to see them by a rather newish junior accountant called Jack Shoalwater, who has only been working there since June. So I think it's winter now. I guess he's been working five to six months. Anyway, Mr. Rafferty appears and tells his security guards to arrest the crew. What? arrest them this book is so wild there's been so many adventures and we're only 40 percent of the book way through the book rather mr rafferty thinks that nancy is a con artist and will be milking the family for money as payment for searching for lisa what a ridiculous concept nancy also thinks that it's a ridiculous concept and tells him coolly mr rafferty i intend to find lisa frankly i'd rather work with you than have to tell mrs faulkner that you wouldn't cooperate so why don't you give her a call and tell her what you think so Mrs. Faulkner put Rafferty in Mr. Rafferty rather in his place and Nancy resumes the investigation. The bank manager is a Japanese man called Mr. Kamenisky and he tells her that it wasn't unusual for Lisa to come into the fold on Diana's behalf and only Diane, Alice and Lisa have access to the vault. If any staff wanted access, they needed permission from three of the senior staff, which was Mr. Kamenowski, Mr. Rafferty, and Amy Sawson, who is the bank's vice president. Before they leave, Mr. Rafferty apologizes to Nancy and tells her that he loves Lisa as if she was his own and wants to find her. And when asked why he was so rude, he says, I was afraid of your involvement in this matter would deeply upset an already a delicate situation. The bank has uh, certain difficulties. I'm not at liberty to discuss them. Forgive me, of course. I'm willing to give you all the help I can. Hmm. Both Mrs. Faulkner and Mr. Rafferty have alluded to this. Has Lisa been kidnapped as a threat to them? Could it get Lisa's killed? I have no idea. I hate this. Oh, why can't I solve this case? I feel like I'm missing something really important. Something that would have... Oh, I don't know. I just don't know. Now it's time to check out the apartment block where Boomer said he saw Lisa. Bess and George, our favourite undercover cousins, tell the clerks that they want to rent an apartment. Once the clerks are distracted, Nancy jumps behind the counter and grabs the keys. And also there's talk of a volcano erupting on the news, but they turn that off. 
Nancy manages to find a place listed for an L. Faulkner, so Lisa's using the family's maiden name. That's quite smart. Inside, the place is empty, totally cleaned out. Someone must have overheard them talking about the apartment block and tipped Lisa off, probably that radio transmitter in the car. Nancy notices that a curtain rod is not hanging correctly. What a good observation, Nancy. And looks inside the rod, even smarter thinking. What's inside but a bond for 50k? Not only that, there's a shipping manifest for pieces of radio equipment. The buyer? None other than the Mahalini Corporation. And the items? They came from Japan. It also mentions their PO box number. I feel like a PO box stakeout is going to occur in this book at some point. That's like going to be the only way they can catch who was responsible for this Mahali Corporation. I also feel like there's a Japan link somewhere. Mr. Kamanoski, the bank's president, is Japanese, and if he ordered things, he has access to the vault. Weird connection, but I wouldn't put it past the author, you know, Japanese man, Japanese uh, electronics. I really hope that's not the case. Anyway, this discovery proves that Lisa and the Malahani Corporation are connected somehow. But why? Again, getting frustrated about my weak detective skills. Nancy and Ned asked the clerk about Lisa. It turns out that she checked out an hour prior after a phone call. And then some movers called Kukuka Moving Van Company emptied out the apartment. Again, sorry for butchering this Hawaiian pronunciation. Lisa paid for the room with the Mahalalini corporate credit card. Nancy and Ned figure it's time to talk to Alice and Mr. Rafferty about these business issues because they're clearly behind this mystery. So off they head to speak to Alice. Yet again, this book is so descriptive and I love it and it feels like I'm actually in Hawaii. It says, The Hawaiian night was cool and still, a gold glimmer nested on the mountains, the last remnant of sunset. The plantation house gleamed in the moonlight, palm trees rustled in a soft breeze. See, how beautiful is that? Just makes me wish I was there with a cocktail in my hand. The senior bank staff are all at Mrs. Faulkner's house and they are feasting on an old-fashioned Polynesian dinner, roast suckling pig with a baked taro, cooked spinach and po, a starchy pudding made of papaya, mangoes and bananas. Oh, much better cuisine than the pizza that they always eat. And gosh, the sound of this meal makes me so hungry. Amy Sawson, the bank's vice president, was surprised to see that George was a girl. I mean, I guess most people are, but... Yeah, I don't know why they had to point this out. I guess maybe Amy's responsible because she's surprised she does have access to the vault, I guess. Over dinner, we learn all about the Mulhani Corporation. Basically, they're a property developer and competitor to Winwood Bancorp. After the initial explanation, Bess, bless her heart, is confused. I was too. Finance and investments are not my strong suit. Amy explains it to us all. Alice and Ross are worried about the bank's cash flow. Their own property development, Kalalani, (laughs) I know how to pronounce that because of 90 Day Fiancé, best show by the way. However, if the investors find out about the cash flow issues, they will dump their shares and then another investor will buy the shares and take over Winwood Bank Corp. So basically whoever owns the most shares in a company kind of is in control of it. Nancy is absolutely furious that Ross doesn't want to see the police because of this and how he values the company over a human being. (laughs) That's capitalism for you. So we know what the Malahini Corp are, but we don't know who they are. 
The senior bank members and a man named Lester Jarman, who was Alice's late husband's business partner and the biggest stakeholder in the bank next to Alice, have all been trying hard to find out exactly who they are, but with no luck. This chapter has a weird end. No cliffhanger, but Nancy's realizing that she's getting thrown into the strange and treacherous world of high finance. I feel like if I had a hard copy of this book, that that would be on the blurb, despite being mentioned 55% of the way through the book. So yeah, we're 55% of the way through the book and we're only just beginning to kind of find a, a motive, I guess, for this disappearance. However, right at the start, they said they had business enemies. Still, it wasn't really a big factor until now. A trip to the police station the next day gives Nancy no more information about the Mulhini Corp. They have no office in Hawaii, the company is registered in the Cayman Islands, and they are on top of their taxes and the payments come out of the Bank of Nova Scotia, which is actually a Canadian multinational bank. Next, they canvass the beach. A surfer tells them that he saw Lisa and a big guy looking up and down the beach for something. Then a woman came and yelled at them and they got in the car. I'm going to assume that the diamonds or the bonds are missing and that's why they're going up and down the beach because anybody can cash them in. Nancy has a theory that Lisa got involved in the Mulhani Corporation after they promised to help get Lisa to San Francisco to be with Michelle. That makes sense. That's a really good theory, Nancy. Of course, Lisa wants to escape and these people can make it happen for her. The girls are walking through the markets later on that day and Nancy uses one of her old detective's tricks, looking in a store window to see if anyone else is behind her. And yet again, it's the man with the moon face who we saw from Lisa's window and then again later at the mall. rather. Who is this man? I'm really curious to find out who he is. They devise a plan to get the man to follow them back to the yacht. George is meant to be waiting outside for him and seeing what he does once Bess and Nancy go inside. They head to the yacht. Nancy opens a curtain on a porthole but can't see him. However, there is this cliffhanger in the book of someone running onto the boat and coming down the hatch. However, it's not exciting. It's just a ball that a kid from a neighboring boat had thrown down there. And George is still waiting outside and the moon-faced man eventually does appear. He asks for Nancy and introduces himself as a private eye. George manages to fob him off and then he asks about Nancy's friends and George pretends to know George that he's a great foot player from Oklahoma State. <laughs> okay, so George is continuing to pretend that Nancy's friend George is a boy. I feel like this is important. He leaves and then George gives Nancy his license plate number HWI028. Later that day, Nancy gets a tax evasion lesson from Jack at the bank. Jack then uses his contacts to get super secret information from an agency called the Makaha Agency. We learn that the license plate is from the Moonface Man that claimed to be a detective and it was a hire car and that the Malahani Corporation paid for it. No surprises about a link there, but I'm still confused. I feel really dumb and I've been feeling this a lot lately on this book. Nancy figures that the Malahani Corporation hired the agency who are called Apex Detective Agency to find Lisa and now they've hired Apex again to follow Nancy. Nancy goes to check out the detective office agency. It's in a rundown part of Honolulu. Supposedly the west side is rundown and from a quick 
Google search, it seems that it's still that way today. So generification hasn't happened in that part of the city yet. She finds the office and then notices the smell of chloroform and is swiftly knocked out. Is this the first chloroform use in this book? I remember it being common, but this is book 23 and I don't believe we've come across it so far. So chloroform count one. Nancy wakes up in the back of a car. She's been kidnapped, but not to worry. She was kidnapped by a chauffeur of Lester Jarman, Alice's late husband's business partner and co-founder of Winwood. He's taken Nancy to Mr. James' estate, where along with Jester is Amy, the vice president, and Mr. Komonowski, who is the president of the bank. Nancy initially believes that these three are behind the Mulhani Corp, but they're not. They're just deadly scared of who is because it will destroy their bank. Nancy tells Lester about Cayman Islands and this leads Lester to believe that there is a rotten apple working at Wincorp and knows that the company is in trouble and goes on to explain, someone who knows the kind of bind we're in. It all goes back a few years, Nancy. Ross Rafferty came over here from the mainland. Everyone said he was some kind of financial hotshot. He started lending money right and left to all those little countries in the Pacific. Then the world debt crisis caught up with them. The Pacific countries couldn't make the interest payments. We had no money coming in. So that's what Ross meant by a cash problem, Nancy commented. The old man nodded. That's a fancy way of saying old Ross gambled on those third world loans and came up empty. So Alice and me, we took control of the bank away from Ross and put our remaining money into the Kalani project. When it's finished, it will pay off big. We have enough to cover our bad loans and have a tidy profit to boot. Then the Mulhani Corporation mysteriously appeared, Nancy added, and began sniping at your project. That's right. What a coincidence, eh? Ross is right, though. Whoever is behind the Malahini Corp wants our stockholders to dump their shares. Then they'll move in, buy them all up, and force me and Alice out. Hmm, this conversation is very interesting. Jester also mentions that Alice cares too much about the family and not enough about the bank, then jokes that it might even be him behind the Malahani Corp. Well, it could be. He does seem annoyed about Alice not putting the bank first. There is also a mention of a beeper going off in Amy's bag. I feel like this might be important later, so I better mention it now. Hmm, this case has gotten interesting. Maybe it's Mr. Rafferty, but I doubt he'll put his own daughter in danger. Diane seemed nonchalant about the daughter being Missy, and maybe she does want the family money. Gosh, this is getting juicy. Who is the greedy one who wants to see Wincorp fail and take all of their money for themselves? And this San Francisco connection, the flight school must play a part of it somewhere. I'm very intrigued now. Who knew finance could be so exciting? Actually, I know it's exciting. I've seen some of the TV show Billions. I know that it can be. Next, Nancy, Bess and George, along with the two police officers that we met earlier, stake out Apex Detective Agency. The moon-faced man tries to run away and Nancy throws a trash can lid at him. (laughs) I actually laughed at that. I can just imagine Nancy throwing a lid at this guy. (laughs) They finally catch up with him and get him to spill the beans on who he is and what he's doing. His name is Wally. Malahini got him to follow Lisa for $10,000 and then they paid him $20,000 to follow Nancy and her friends. The crew theorized that Malahini hid something inside the deposit box and Lisa accidentally took it. Malahini Corp found Lisa and put her up at the apartments. They knew Nancy was on the case and got scared, so Wally was hired to follow Nancy and her friends. So, who at Winwood is responsible? 
I think since three people need access to the deposit box, it would have to be the three people who need to give permission. So first of all, there's Amy Sawson, the vice president, Mr. Kamanowski and Mr. Rafferty. However, I don't think Mr. Rafferty would do that to his own daughter. So maybe Amy and Mr. Kamanowski are working together. It would make sense since they are angry that Mr. Rafferty ruined the company's finance. That's motive enough. Hmm, I think we may be getting onto something here. I think it is those two. Uh, so later on, the crew arrive at the bank and it turns out that Lisa's kidnappers have sent a ransom note along with Lisa's bracelet to prove Lisa is with them. The note reads, we've got Lisa. Here's her bracelet. If you call the police, she's dead. Here are our terms. You, Jamin, Kamenowski, Sawson and the Faulkners will sell your shares in Winwood Bancorp to us at a price we will name or else you will never see Lisa again. Hmm, maybe our theory is wrong. Amy and Kamikowski are listed in the letters, but if only the Faulkners and Lester sold their shares, that would be the majority to take over. That is interesting. Alice says that she doesn't care, she needs to save her granddaughter and will pay up. Arguments start breaking out between everyone. People are mad that Mr. Rafferty's actions have led to this. Diane and Alice are in tears and Nancy asks what Diane had in the box. She tells her, my passport, my jewelry, this and that, I'm afraid I didn't keep track. I left all the money matters to my advisors. And Nancy asked who they were. Diane explains that her father had left her a substantial portfolio. Kamenowski took care of it at first. Um, and we learn that he's been at the bank since she was a girl. Uh, when she married Ross, he took over the affairs. And then since they got divorced, Diana Sawson has been serving as the financial advisor. So I guess Amy is in charge of everything in the deposit box. And Mr. Kamenowski would know as well because he's been there since she was a child. But not actively working in there. Okay, I think it's Amy. It must be Amy. Amy's got control of everything, but I don't have a motive yet. Nancy decides to take another look at the shipping manifest that was in the bonds and notices that there was a beeper in there, just like Amy had. Okay, that's generally not unusual. Beepers were common in the 80s. And then she remembers Amy thinking that George was a boy and comes up with a plan. Unfortunately for us, we have to keep reading to see what it is. She calls the two police officers to help her set up a plan. So here's the plan. Nancy pretends that a surfer gave her a bond and that it has a note on it from Lisa. Nancy knows that the Mulahini Corp knows that Lisa was at the bank, so it makes the story sound believable. And she calls Lester Jarman to tell him about the note. She also tells him that the note is unreadable, so she's taking it to the cops and gets him to call Mrs. Faulkner to tell her to meet her at the station. However, Nancy has already told Alice to take the phone off the hook. Remember that? You don't want to be annoyed, just take the phone off the hook. <laughs> I miss that. Nancy knows that Lester will tell the bank people and they will try and come after Nancy before she goes to the cops, probably by asking her to come to the bank first to verify the bond, but they'll kidnap her on the way. However, Nancy will be wired and the police will be able to track her. That's very, very assumptuous. Uh, Nancy's never wrong, so let's hope that this plan pans out. Hmm. Like, it is all quite clever, but I feel like the pieces are missing. As usual, though, we'll probably get a confession when Nancy's held captive or at gunpoint or something. We always do. So, yeah, we're about to find out who the culprit is. Who do you think it is? Drum roll, please. It's Amy. The clues? The beeper. This was a dumb clue because everyone, you know, has beepers then. 
She was also Diana's financial planner, so she had access to the deposit box, and she was surprised at George being male. She assumed George was male and told the detective that was following him that she was, and that was the actual clue that Nancy knew that it was Amy because Mr. Kamenowski and Mr. Rafferty had already met George, so they would have been able to tell the detective to follow three girls and a boy. That's very careful, clever. Yeah, Nancy, that's great work. And I'm also glad that the author didn't stereotype the Japanese man with the electronics. So why did Amy kidnap Lisa? Well, because Lisa found out that she was behind the Milhani Corporation and threatened her. She offered to sell the documents back, like the shipping manifest and the bonds and all that other stuff, to Lisa if uh, Lisa promised to fly her to California. 16-year-olds are such simple minds. It's like, oh, yeah, I've got all this important information that would get you fired, but I'm rebellious and I want to move to California. So, you know, you just sell me a ticket to California and I'll be good to go, despite having all the money anyway. Makes no sense. I'm still curious as to why Amy made Malahani Corporation, though, probably to take over Winwood, but I guess we'll find out. Amy takes Nancy to a hangout where Lisa has been held and leaves the room. Nancy earns Lisa's trust by showing her the wire and hiding it in the room. Then Amy comes back with her minions, the guy that drove them to the hangar and a lady that was keeping an eye on Lisa. Amy points a pistol at Nancy's head, puts her in handcuffs and leads her into a... Oh my gosh. (laughs) I was wondering where this was going to take place. A Huey. (laughs) Like... They made such a big deal about the fly at school and the choppers. I just knew that it had to play a part in the book. They are led into the Huey and Lisa warns Nancy about a donut ring because Lisa is a pilot. She knows about the chopper. A donut ring is used her clipper rappel onto in order to slide to the ground. Anyway, so they start flying away and the pilot is also held at gunpoint and told to like just follow the instructions and all of a sudden an erupting volcano appears in the distance. So we heard about that erupting volcano on the news when they went to check out the apartment block and what would a Hawaiian book be without a reference to a volcano in it? The pilot is told to hover over the volcano, but he can't due to the steam. Nancy begins to tackle her captor, and they have a huge physical fight in the cabin of the chopper. This sounds so ridiculous. Uh, A gun goes off, and the pilot is shot. He slumps over the controls, and the chopper starts dipping, and the captor loses his balance and falls right out of the chopper into the lava. (laughs) Oh my goodness, what a terrible way to die. I don't think I've seen such graphic death before. This is brutal. The chopper is shaking and it causes Nancy to lose her footing as well. She too falls out of the chopper. She tries to grab the donut ring but misses. Thankfully, she can manage to grab on to another piece of the chopper and realizes that Lisa is a pilot and can pilot them back to safely. Unfortunately, Nancy's outside of the chopper and Lisa is in handcuffs. And then the most ridiculous part of all the books so far comes in. Nancy somehow manages to get back inside the out-of-control chopper, unlocks Lisa from her handcuffs, and Lisa takes over piloting the helicopter. I'm just imagining this in my head. This is impossible. The steam from the volcano, the out-of-control chopper spinning it madly, and Nancy just dangling. How on earth could she manage to get back inside? I think Nancy Drew is Wonder Woman in disguise. I also think this book needs to be made into a movie because it would be great. There's nothing better than like mindless 
action movies. Uh, they also mention lava spitting and the windscreen melting. So this is just absolutely wild. Together, Nancy and Lisa take the chopper back to safety and Nancy tells herself that she's going to get her helicopter license because having a pilot license just isn't good enough. No, it's not, Nancy. You need to be able to drive all aerial vehicles. The next day, Amy's actions are exposed to the bank and she's arrested for kidnapping, amongst other things. We still don't know the motive, though, which is weird. I guess she just wanted money. It's very weird not to show the motive at the end of the book. The bank took some beating at the stock market, but it will be okay. The Faulkners, Lisa, Diane and Alice are going to go on an around-the-world cruise to reconnect and Nancy, Beth, George and Ned are going to take their yacht around the Hawaiian Islands before heading back home. I guess one of them knows how to navigate and pilot a yacht. I'm going to guess it's Nancy. Sounds lovely though. I wish I was cruising around the Hawaiian Islands. And that is the end of the book. There's so many loose ends. Is Lisa going to see Michelle? I just, I find it weird. There's also this lack of motive things. It's very weird that we have so many loose ends in a book. I also can't get over the helicopter scene. First the struggle in the cabin, then Nancy can manage to swing outside of a helicopter that's over an erupting volcano and get back into the cabin. It's just it's just wild. <laughs> what did you think of this book? I'd love for you to let me know. You can email me at hello at nancydrewpodcast.com or let me know on Instagram, Nancy Drew Podcast. So as for our segments, there was no kisses, just yeah, and I'm surprised Bess didn't meet a cute Hawaiian guy. Like, that's very unusual. And I'm surprised there actually wasn't any mention of Bess, like, fawning over cute Hawaiian surfer dudes. It's very – this book is very, very weird, like, a very out of place of the series. There's not many clues to where River Heights is. We know it's not in Hawaii. <laughs> um, and as for the near-death experiences, well, this was quite a big one. There was the helicopter incident the explosion of the volcanic ash triggered by the radio, and there was also the broken brakes at the start. I don't know if we should include the kidnapping one. I don't think we will. So we'll leave it at three incidents, bringing our total to a 58. This book was so jam-packed with adventure, it felt really long. Like There were so many crazy things happening, but no real big clues to the mystery. I'm going to give the book a three stars. I don't like the loose ends. I don't like the that the case had no motive, um, but the scenery and setting of this book was sublime. And yeah, three stars for me. I'd love to know how many stars you gave this book. <laughs> anyway, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Bye, detective. <laughs>